Let's open up our Bibles together now to Galatians chapter 1. This is Reformation Sunday, the, the, the Sunday closest to October 31st that comes before it. Uh, October 31st being what holiday? Reformation Day. You got it. That's right. The day that Martin Luther posted his 95 theses to the castle church at Wittenberg, there to the door in 1517, some 500 years ago, which became the spark then that really ignited the Protestant Reformation. We are a product of that Reformation and the central issues of the Protestant Reformation, uh, many of you that are part of this church, I hope you are coming to know these well, can be signed, summed up in five Latin expressions. We call them the five solas. It's the, the five real core commitments of this movement, sola meaning alone or only. First being sola scriptura, scripture alone. It is the only infallible, inspired, authoritative word of God. As such, it is totally sufficient. It, it, it gives to us all that we need for life and godliness. Sola gratia, salvation is by grace alone, not through our works, not through our earning, not through our meriting. Sola fide, we are justified, given right standing with God through faith alone. This faith is a gift, as we have been seeing in the book of Romans. Solus Christus, that we're saved by the merits of Christ alone. Not, not Jesus plus whatever this other thing is. No, Jesus alone. We approach God through one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And all of these culminate in this glorious declaration, Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. The true gospel is the gospel that gives glory to God alone. There's no sharing of that glory. And these are the truths that we stake our lives on. These are the truths that Christians ought to live and die for. They are foundational to what we believe as Christians. They really serve as an important summary of the gospel itself. And as we Think on the Reformation that happened 500 plus years ago now. We're reminded that the church today is in great need of a new Reformation. The, the further we have strayed from the biblical center, our worship has become increasingly self-oriented. Increasingly man-focused. Many of the churches that even haven't taken a full-on liberal shift are still focused on things that are much more psychological than biblical, things that look much more like a feel-good pep rally, things that are pragmatic. Here's the list of things to do and the list of things not to do, things that are how-to oriented, and unfortunately, increasingly in step with our godless culture. In other words... Our worship has become man-centered rather than God-centered. Much of American Christianity has lost its theological center. The house may still be standing at this moment, but the foundations are completely rotted. Many of our best sellers, if you frequent Christian bookstores, which R.C. Sproul said, we're, we're Christ uh, incarnate today instead of going to the temple and taking a whip and turning over tables, he would just go to our Christian bookstores. 
I think he's right about that. Many of our most popular preachers, many of our largest churches are preaching at best a powerless man-centered gospel. At best. But really it's just another man-made religion with no power to save, no power to change people's lives, but it, it continues to spiral downward from there. The LGBT movement has infiltrated the church in stunning fashion. Not, not, just, not just the culture, which has happened in an amazingly short amount of time, the church itself, such that you see Christians who want to continue to affirm the Bible actually attempting to make arguments that the Bible condones the things the Bible speaks clearly about. Just this week, you may have heard Pope Francis affirmed gay marriage. Now, just to be clear, on this Reformation Sunday, we do not affirm Pope Francis or any pope. We stand in opposition to the pope and the Roman Catholic Church. But this is a powerful demonstration of what has happened in American Christendom and the quickly changing landscape of the American worldview. Of course, of course, the Pope's not American, and so we see that this is going on worldwide. Numerous famous popular Christian leaders continue to come out one after another after another, if not just in support of LGBT issues and gay marriage, coming out themselves as gay. The majority of young people, uh, people under 25, maybe people under 30, but certainly the younger people under 25, the ones who've been raised in our churches have unwavering support for the LGBT community, no questions asked, no second thoughts. They believe, by the way, that not doing so would make you a bigot and put you squarely on the wrong side of history. These are kids who would still call themselves Christians and have been raised in our churches, Critical race theory, intersectionality, the things we see driving the Black Lives Matter movement are sweeping through even conservative churches and seminaries like a plague, causing division in Christ's body, undermining our union, not only with Christ as individuals, but our union in Christ with one another, inciting ethnic prejudice and mistrust and disunity. Our colleges and universities, our Christian schools are overrun with these things. Forget about the secular schools. The Christian schools are overrun with all of these godless ideologies. Many evangelical churches are swallowing wholesale these lies that are being spoon-fed to them by a godless, God-hating culture. And all the while, these groups would point their finger right back at someone like me standing in a pulpit like this who would call us back to a God-centered biblical foundation and they would say, you're the one promoting man-made religion. You and your white colonialized religion. And here's the thing. People are buying this by the thousands. By the thousands. Churches in this community Make no mistake about it, we need a new Reformation. We need the, the Reformation must continue. That was actually one of the great cries of the Reformation, Semper Reformanda, always reforming, always calling ourselves back to the biblical center, back to a God-centered foundation. 
These dangers, though, that the church is facing today are every bit as dangerous as anything the church of Jesus Christ has ever faced. Oh, we're not in danger of someone bursting in here and killing us this morning, but these lies, these dangers that have come into the church, these heresies and false teachings and blasphemous teachings are every bit as deadly and dangerous as anything the church has ever faced. Critical race theory is every bit as dangerous as any heresy that has ever come into the church. So on this Reformation Sunday, it seems right to revisit Paul's words here in Galatians. I'm just going to read a couple of verses, starting in verse 6. Galatians chapter 6, or Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, I pray that we would be instructed by your word. I pray that your spirit would accomplish your good, supernatural purposes through your word. I pray, Lord, even as we talk about this difficult topic of false teaching and heresy that that seeks to gain entrance into your church, Lord, that we would be encouraged and strengthened by the truth of your word, that, that, that the true gospel has power for salvation, that you, our God, are accomplishing all of your good purposes, that the Lord Jesus Christ is building his church, that though this world with devils filled may threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Thank you that the spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth, as we declared this morning. And so, Lord, we stand on your word. We stand in the hope of the gospel. And I pray for myself as I proclaim your word this morning that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You might have caught this word that Paul uses right here in verse 6, desertion. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him. It's an ugly word, desertion. Conjures up images of soldiers running away from the battle, deserting their duty, deserting their friends, abandoning their country. It's a treason so serious that it could be a capital offense. And that's what Paul is accusing these Galatian Christians of doing. That's what he tells them they have done. They have wandered away from the faith that Paul has preached to them. They have wandered away. They have deserted the Savior who died so his people might have eternal life. They have abandoned the God who graciously called them to salvation. But what we need to understand about them, if we're going to have any sense of what's going on in the church and in the world around us, is that wasn't their intention. They didn't set out with the purpose of abandoning God. They were being lured away. 
They had been lured away from him by false teachers who were persuading them to believe a false gospel. But we need to hear Paul's words clearly. Even though they didn't intend to abandon God, even though they didn't intend to, to desert him and commit treason against him, Paul says, that's exactly what you're doing. It's exactly what they were doing. Desertion of God in his truth, then, is easier to do than we might expect. And people that we love, people who are quote-unquote good people, do it all the time. A little bit of error in our theology can lead to spiritual confusion, which easily turns into spiritual desertion and betrayal of God. Getting the gospel wrong, even when it seems like a small thing, what's the big deal, could mean the difference, we need to understand this, between eternal life and eternal damnation. Because that's the road that it puts you on. These false teachers didn't, that, that Paul's dealing with in the book of Galatians, and if you've been a tr- part of this church for a long time, you remember we went all the way through this verse, book, verse by verse. These false teachers that they were dealing with in Galatia, They didn't look like false teachers to the Galatians. It's almost always how it is with false teachers. They don't look like false teachers. They're nice people. They're good people. They seem to be zealous for God, and they sound so close to being right. There's just this little bit of falsehood mixed in there. In Galatia, Paul's battling the Judaizers. The Judaizers claim to be Christians, it's not like they came into the scene and it looked like an ACDC concert and everybody had glowing devil horns on their head. They said they were Christians. These were their friends. These were their family members. They taught that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God, that he died for our sin, that he was raised from death, that you must believe in him in order to receive salvation. That's all very orthodox. It's all necessary components to the gospel. But they just made one little addition. That's all. They had all of this right, all the core right. They just made one little addition. Before you can believe in Christ and be saved, you've got to come through the door of Judaism. That's all. Just one little addition. In in particular, you need to be circumcised and you need to obey the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant. That's all. It doesn't sound that bad, actually, at first glance. It even makes a lot of sense. Why wouldn't God want to make sure a person was really sincere? If God had sacrificed his own beloved son, wouldn't he, he wouldn't want to squander that grace on a person who was going to be flippant about it. Someone who didn't take salvation seriously. Someone who intended to just go on living a sinful life. So, so saying that a requirement before you can be saved is to become obedient to the law of Moses, that seems reasonable. It seems to even be taking God very seriously. But it's actually a perversion of the gospel. It's actually a twisting of the truth. Well, friends, it happens in such little ways, in ways that I wonder if many of us would even catch. It's close to being right, but it actually disqualifies a person from salvation. 
There's no salvation found in the gospel of the Judaizers. It's a denial of Jesus' work on the cross being sufficient for salvation. It's a rejection of grace that leaves a person unconverted. It, it condemns them by that very law that they're calling people to obey. Paul, Paul says this later to the people who'd believed this false teaching in Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. That's how serious it is. We're not saved by our good works. We are saved by the grace of God. And if God has truly saved us by his grace, we will do good works by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not going to be a sermon this morning about live however you want. We will do the good works that God has has set before us to do if we have been saved by him. Paul tells us this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that is what a Christian is going to look like. The workmanship of God created in Christ for good works that we would walk in them. In other words, that's how we live our lives. But just before that, we have to get the order right. Just before that, in the two verses that lead into that, starting in verse 8, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. We must get the order right. Good works are the natural outworking of salvation, but they are not the cause of our salvation. We're saved by grace for good works or unto good works. So if there are no good works, if our life is not marked by obedience to God, if we don't see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, if our life is marked by rebellion, it is likely an indication that we have not been saved by God's grace. We are unconverted. We are still living like dead people. It doesn't, it doesn't testify that we have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, which produces in us a comprehensive righteousness, high and holy living. But we're not saved by that high and holy living. We're not saved by those good works. We're not even saved by our obedience to the law of God. And, and these are not insignificant differences to get that order right. It's not some small thing. It's not a matter of precision and just making sure you've got all your theological ducks in a row so if you're talking to a really smart person, they don't correct you and go, well, actually, you've got it. No, it's, it's much bigger than that. It's much more than that. This isn't a matter of academic and, be, and being technical about our language. How dare we allow ourselves to think even for a moment that we are saved or stay saved by being good people. That, that our own righteousness has anything to do with our salvation or has any merit before God that would commend us to him. 
That is a heretical perversion of the gospel. It minimizes God's holiness to shocking degrees. It elevates our goodness to places that are completely unrealistic. We depend totally, exclusively on God's grace for our salvation. If we begin to think otherwise at all, we have ceased to be humble, we have ceased to be grateful for our salvation, and we have become arrogant And we have believed a perverted false gospel. On the other hand, though, if we then, because we we understand that there's nothing in us to commend us to God, that we must be saved by God's grace alone and not our own goodness, and that leads us down a road where we begin to knowingly sin, thinking that because of God's grace, we're free to do whatever we want, and surely he'll forgive me because that's what God does. We're falling into the ditch on the other side of the road. We're perverting the gospel. We're presuming on God's grace. And again, we may very well be proving that we are unconverted. And so these teachers in Galatia are preaching mostly what is a true gospel with this little addition that they have added into it that doesn't sound so bad. What's so bad about obeying God's law in the Old Testament? There's nothing wrong with that, of course. Is it so evil to circumcise your child when they're born? Of course not. But they're perverting the gospel by saying you have to do these things and it's part of the way you earn salvation. You earn your justification. You earn your right standing with God. And Paul is so angry with the Galatians that they have believed this perverted false gospel Here's what he says about those who are causing this confusion among them. Let them be accursed. That's how seriously Paul takes this false teaching, which most Christians today wouldn't even detect as false teaching. Let them be accursed. These are incredibly strong words. We'll we'll see shortly. So in this passage, we're able to to draw some parallels and see how it is that false teaching works, how it is that it infiltrates the church, and, and really four causes for the spiritual confusion in the church today that we can draw from the causes of spiritual confusion in the church in Galatia. The first, here in verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The first thing is this, it's a desertion of God. But Paul's not shocked that false teachers have come into the church. He expects false teachers to come into the church. It's not a surprise to him. What is surprising? What is astonishing? What has him so upset? It's how easily these Galatian Christians have been led astray by this false teaching. It's how quickly they've embraced this false teaching. Paul says that is a deserting of God's grace in Christ and you fell for it hook, line, and sinker and you drank it right in immediately. John Piper says this. You can picture Paul back in Antioch listening in stunned silence to the reports that the churches in Galatia are turning away from God and away from the grace of Christ as he puts his head in his hands and wonders if his work was in vain. It was astonishing then and it is astonishing today that anyone hearing the best news in all the world that God offers you full and free forgiveness and hope 
would turn to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Paul refers to what they've done as desertion. And that's what it is. When we turn away from the true gospel to any other false gospel, it is a desertion. That's a military political term. In other words, he says you are traitors. You are traitors who have abandoned God. By rejecting the true gospel of God's grace, they were actually deserting God himself. They had abandoned the true gospel and believed a delusion. That's going on all over today in the church. All over. It's going on all over in our Christian colleges. I hear stories all the time about things that are being taught in these Christian colleges. Well, you know, people have homosexual desires. It's because they were born like that, and you can't change that. That's, that's innate to who you are. There's no hope of the gospel there at all. Is God's arm so short? It's a perversion. I don't need to hear about our unity in Christ. I need to hear about how I experience this life as a black man and you experience it as a white man. That's what I need to focus on, not our unity in Christ right now. That's not what we need to talk about. This is what we need to talk about. You understand that is being preached in conservative churches. And Paul says, you're a traitor. You're perverting the gospel. It's a perverted, weak gospel. This is not an agree-to-disagree situation. This is abandoning God and believing a delusion. It's a matter of life and death. In fact, it's a matter of eternal life and eternal death, and woe to those who teach such things. Turning from the true gospel, God's saving of sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and embracing a false gospel of self-salvation through good works or sincerity or good intentions or being your true self or your own inherent goodness, which leaves you in a place where there's not even sin to be atoned for. Whatever it is, it is treason against God himself, and the result is not salvation, it is damnation, it is destruction. So the first cause of the spiritual disaster we see around us is unfaithful people deserting God by rejecting the gospel of his grace and buying into a false gospel, which Paul says is no gospel at all. What leads a person to do this? I'm astonished in these days that pastors I have looked up to for years, some of my favorite preachers for years are buying into this stuff. And I can't wrap my head around it. Well, we see what's going on here as we go on. Verse 7. Not that there is another one. In other words, there's no actual other gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. How does a person abandon God? Because of a they have distorted the gospel. That's how they abandon God. Again, the, the Galatians... Even the Judaizers who were, who were troubling them, who Paul says, let them be accursed, they didn't think they had abandoned God, but they had distorted the gospel. Paul says, they want to distort the gospel of Christ. Literally, that means reverse it. Flip it on its head and make it mean the exact opposite of what it really means. 
If, if any law, if any human effort is added to the gospel, it, re- it doesn't just pollute it, it reverses it. It flips it upside down. Jonathan Edwards famously said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. This, this false gospel turns that on its head and says, no, here are the works that you must do in order to contribute to your salvation. We sang it this morning, in Christ alone, my hope is found. In Christ alone. No, no part of salvation can be earned by man, not in any way. Even our faith and repentance are gifts that God must give to us. They're necessary precursors to salvation. There's no, there's no salvation apart from faith and repentance. But God gives those gifts. We don't drum them up within ourselves. We don't get to take the credit for those. We can't produce them within ourselves. They must be given. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25 Paul says, a pastor should correct his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which we just read a little bit ago. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this, that is, saving faith, is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one may boast. These these false teachings, these godless ideologies that are taking hold of the church today are distortions of the gospel. They are perversions of the gospel. They are not just different points of view that change with the times so that we stay on the right side of history. They distort the gospel so completely as to reverse it. Third then, we see in verse 8. Even if we... This is Paul speaking. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. At issue here is what is our standard for truth? How do we know what's true and what's false? What is the standard? Do you believe something is true because of who told you? Simply because of who it is that told you. Some impressive teacher. Someone who's very talented and persuasive and charismatic, and so yes, I believe them. Do you believe something simply because, well, that's what my parents taught me growing up? Do you believe something because that's how we've always done it? Or, friends, do you believe because God has revealed that truth in his word? We are a people of the word. Christians in Berea knew how to answer that question. When Paul preached to them, they didn't even take his word for it. Acts 17 verse 11 says, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if things were so. How is it that we spot a counterfeit gospel? I told you, I don't think a lot of Christians today would have caught the Judaizers. I think they would go right along with it the way the Galatians did. Many Christians today are not catching the false teachings that are confronting the church right now. They're being persuaded. How do you spot a counterfeit gospel? Well, the same way that experts spot counterfeit money. You study the real one. So you know exactly what it looks like. 
then you spot the counterfeit when you see it because you know so well the truth. See, the truth is false teachers, false gospels can sound very appealing. Some are obvious to us. But like the Judaizers, many of them sound so right about so many things. They're such nice and lovable people. False teachers are almost always likable people. Most of the time, false teachers actually believe that they're right. They don't think that they're lying. They have deceived themselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, Paul says this of false teachers. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Paul there is talking about people who claim to be Christians, claim to be teaching a Christian message, and he says they are servants of Satan. But they look so good. They look so believable. We must, friends, be discerning. No matter how gifted the person is, no matter how popular they are, no matter how much we like them, any distortion of the gospel is a wicked treason against God. And Paul says, here's how serious it is, if you want to know. If we, that is, I, Paul, and any of my companions, if we, or even an angel from heaven preach any different gospel, let him be accursed. That's how serious Paul takes this. This brings us to the final cause of trouble in the church, an underestimation of the danger that's involved. Paul, that sounds too serious. Verse 9, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone has preached to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. False teachers are extremely dangerous. They have always been extremely dangerous, and it has never been more true in the world than it is right now because they have a very long reach. We've got books. We've got the internet, we've got television, we've got music, we've got movies, we've got very vocal celebrities, we've got politicians, we've got all of these things. Churches must guard against false teachers with all diligence. Now, now many people say this, and I know you've heard it, I wish churches just talked more about what they're for instead of what they're against. Always talk about what they're against. Talk about what you're for. Churches talk too much about false teachers. Just talk about what you believe in a, in a positive way and don't talk about what you don't believe. It's so arrogant. It's so judgmental when I hear these Christians and these churches point to someone else's teaching and they say, oh, that's false, that's heretical, like you've got all the answers, like you know everything. I remember once seeing a 
an episode of Oprah, who at one time was our most famous false teacher in the world. Now she's lost a lot of her notoriety. Remember her confronting a woman in her audience once who claimed that Jesus Christ was the only way of salvation, and she said, it is so scary to me. It is so scary to hear someone say there's only one way, and they've figured out what it is. Well, that's what the world would say to us time and time again. How dare you say someone else is teaching what is false and, and that you actually know what's true from what's false? Listen, that's not how Paul felt about this at all. Not at all. Verse 8 says, anyone preaching a different gospel than the one we preach. In other words, we are right about the gospel, and if anyone disagrees with us, they're wrong and should go to hell. That's what Paul said. Doesn't that sound humble? <laughs> Anyone who preaches something different than what we preach is a heretic. That's what Paul says. Acts 20, Paul describes false teachers like this. They are savage wolves who will not spare the flock. That's why he talks the way he does. That's why he takes this so seriously. And he shows us here again how seriously he takes the danger of false teachings. Two times in just these couple verses, he says, let them be accursed. The word is anathema. Eternally doomed. He wanted God to eternally curse false teachers. In other words, let them be damned. Let them go to hell forever and ever. That is serious. That is a serious thing to say. How could Paul, the apostle of grace, wish that another human would be doomed forever? That's how serious Paul and God take the gospel. That's why. He even calls down condemnation on himself if he ever fell into that category of false teacher who teaches a false gospel. There is no more severe condemnation in all of Scripture than what Paul calls down here on false teachers who are teaching a perverted gospel. And he uses such harsh language because he's dealing with an eternal life and eternal death situation. These aren't people who are out just to, to these false gospels aren't out just to, to kill a person physically. And we see that with some of the false gospels that are prevalent in our world today in the LGBT movement. Your odds of, of early death skyrocket in the LGBT and trans community. We see that even in critical race theory. We see it in the riots and the death that have followed. We see the death that follows lawlessness. Yeah, they're out to kill you physically, but listen, these godless ideologies are out to kill you forever in hell. False teaching is a serious danger to your soul. Don't discount it. Don't disregard it as harmless words. And friends, don't have anything to do with false teachers and heretics. Nothing. Even if most of what they say sounds pretty good, have nothing to do with them. Regard them as those who are under God's wrath because that's what they are. Now, we are not the ones who pass judgment on other people. We don't declare who's under the wrath of God, who's going to hell, who's anathema. We shouldn't just go, go around like someone says something that you don't quite agree with and you yell the word anathema in their face. 
They say, what was that? I just pronounced an eternal curse of damnation on your soul. Uh, because you don't like Chinese food, and I like it a lot. Now, we're not the ones who do that, but this is what God says about those who pervert the gospel. Mark them well as those who are under condemnation and are preaching a message of condemnation. They are destroying, they are distorting the gospel of God's grace. We should mark them. We should not be ashamed to mark them. Many of you know, if you come and ask me about a particular church in the community or a particular pastor that is famous or prominent, you will get from me the exact answer about what I think about that person and the message that they preach. I'm not ashamed to mark them. We shouldn't be ashamed to mark them. This is life and death. This is God's glory. This is so serious. We need to meditate on the horror of rejecting the true gospel. The Bible doesn't use such harsh language of an eternal curse of God on those who distort the gospel so that we'll read that and then yawn and say, well, it's not that big a deal. They're not that far off and they're nice, loving people. That's not why God talks like this in his word. It's supposed to shock us. It's supposed to make us take something very, very seriously. Friends, there is no other gospel. Let us stand on this truth in these days where false gospels are invading the church of Jesus Christ. Church, churches in these days, friends, are being marked. We're seeing the true church of Jesus Christ being revealed and we're seeing false converts being revealed as well. The only saving gospel is that our salvation comes from the free gift of God when we put our faith, we put our full de dependence on the atoning work of Jesus Christ and his life, his death, his resurrection. It's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let us stand on those truths in these days, unashamedly, no matter what the world throws at us, and it will. It will. The day might not be far off where a church like ours is accused of all manner of things that don't make any sense to us at all. We must stand on the truth of God's word. Amen? Let's stand up together. Almighty God, this is a sobering world uh, word. We, we, we need not do more than look around at the world around us and see that there is a need for your church to commit themselves to stand on the truth of your word, to stand for holiness, to stand for truth, to proclaim the true gospel. Lord, I pray that you would make us here, this little church in this little town, bold to stand for truth. Lord, that we would always speak the truth in love. Let us let the accusations that come against your people who speak the truth not, not be true about us. Lord, we don't want to be arrogant. We don't want to be angry. We don't want to do any of those things that a God-hating world accuses your people of, but we do want to be faithful. Cause us, Lord, to stand in boldness, knowing your promise is true, that you will build your church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
knowing that you are God is in the heavens. You do whatever you please. Knowing even that the king's heart is, is in your hands, being channeled as streams of water. And so, Lord, we rest in you. We trust in you. Give us a, a, a zealous love for you and for your gospel that would cause us, Lord, to spot the false gospels as they come to us quickly. Cause us to be faithful to study your word. Draw our hearts closer to you that we would be marked, Lord, not by a desire to know more and be the ones who are right, but a, a desire to know you more, to be in right standing with you, to be faithful to that which you have called us in this, in this world, which you have placed us as you have determined the times and the places where we live. Pray, God, that you'd be glorified in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.